as I mentioned, um, over the next couple of weeks, we've got uh, uh, three Sundays, including today, uh, between Mother's Day, uh, between now and Mother's Day. Um, and I was really struggling um, with what to preach on over those, over those coming weeks. You didn't want to do, you know, a massive sermon series because you'd have to take a break for Mother's Day and, and stuff like that. Um, but I felt like there was something between now and, and Mother's Day um, that God wanted us to, to talk about. And I couldn't think of what it was. I couldn't think of what it was. And finally, um, I landed on this idea, and I was talking to uh, Mom and Dad in the office on Tuesday, and I said, what if I preached a sermon or a sermon series that looked through the life of Job at when he did the right thing and what happened because he did the right thing. Now that morphed and changed to three sermons about three different people. And today we are going to talk about Joseph and, and what he went through uh, at various points in his life. And I found this very fitting because Charles Stanley, who is one of my favorite pastors, uh, writers, stuff like that, has a saying, and that's where this comes from, the, the title of the sermon, do the right thing and leave the consequences up to God. And I find it very fitting because Tuesday morning, Charles Stanley, who was 90 years old and in poor health, passed away. And I found it very fitting that I'm starting to a sermon series that's based around one of the things that, that he talked about, one of his core tenets, really of being a pastor. He was a pastor for 49 years in Atlanta, Georgia, the same church for 49 years in Atlanta, Georgia. And um, so this is not in any means a tribute to him because I don't do tributes to human beings. I do tributes to God. But I can thank him because he was a faithful man of God for so long and did so many things that helped inspire me and, and so many other men and women to pursue God. But he had this saying, as I mentioned, do the right thing, leave the consequences up to God. And I first heard that one um, from my mom and dad. My mom loved Charles Stanley. And so she's got a, 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 a refrigerator magnet that has that on there. And I went, I've never heard that before. And that's what got me actually looking into Charles Stanley and listening to his sermons and stuff like that. It seems pretty self-explanatory, right? Do the right thing, leave the consequences up to God. Yet, we don't like that idea for a couple of different reasons. The number one reason is we don't want to do the right thing most of the time, right? If Paul didn't want to do the right thing most of the time, neither do any of us. We're not better than Paul. Who was not better than Jesus, okay? So we don't want to do the right thing quite a lot of the time. We like doing the wrong thing. Secondly, we don't like leaving the consequences to somebody else. It's called being in control. We like being in control of everything. Even non-control people, somebody like my wife who is like, yeah, I don't want to pick where we eat. I don't want to pick this. I don't want to do this. Even she likes to be in control. She does. And then you get people like me or the rest of the Brush family. I'm not just singling you out. It's all of us, and you know it's true. God bless my, my, my grandma who is in heaven. That woman needed to be in control of everything. It was great. Loved it because it made my job easier quite a lot of the time. But either way, right, we, you take somebody who really likes to be in control, and boy, we don't want, we're okay with God, right, and just this is humanity as a whole. We're okay with God being on the throne of grace, on the throne of mercy, on the throne of being the loving good God. We 
don't like him very much when he's sitting on the throne that says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the omnipotent, all-knowing, omnipresent creator, sustainer of the universe. I said what is right and wrong, and that's the end. We don't like that God very much because we're not in control anymore. The third reason, and we're going to jump into this in the life of Joseph here, that we genuinely or generally don't like leaving the consequences up to God is because quite often, and we're going to see this in two out of the three areas of Joseph's life so we're going to talk about today, when you leave the consequences up to God, quite often, it doesn't go very well for you. We like to think that whenever we leave the consequences to God, everything's going to turn out okay. And it will. In the very, very end, it will. But oftentimes in the immediate, it does not. So let's look at a couple of these. Go ahead and go to the next slide there. There's a couple of slides of scripture. This first one happens very early on in Joseph's life. He's not even a man yet, right? He's 16, 17, 18 years old, right? In that age group. And most of us in here will know the story of Joseph. Joseph is the son of, uh, of um, I, why did my brain go blank on me? Oh, gosh. Um, Israel, and I can't even remember his real name now. God renamed him Israel. I'm a terrible pastor. Jacob, thank you. That was not in there. All I could think of was Isaac, and I was like, it's not Isaac, it's after him. Thank you. <laughs> Joseph, Joseph is Jacob's son, and he's not only Jacob's son, he is Jacob's favorite. Now, many people in here are parents or grandparents, right? Uh, if you're a grandparent, you've probably been a parent. Um, that's kind of how that progression tends to work. Um, and, and my dad and my mom always said, we don't, we don't have a favorite. We don't have favorites. We don't play favorites. Not to be uh, rude to the rest of my family members. I'm my mom's favorite. I have been my mom's favorite. Not originally. It was Christina, and then I just kind of swooped in and took it. And I like to think I'm my dad's favorite, too. Linnea is nodding. She agrees. I'm just pretty awesome. What can I say? And modest, amen. We like to rank them, right? So, so we take Jax and Nathan out of it because Jax doesn't count. He's the favorite of everybody because he's the grandchild and stuff like that. So we, we put him to the side. He doesn't get counted. And Nathan is kind of in a category all on his own. So we say of me and Linnea and Christina, and poor Christina sometimes somehow always ends up last in all three, in, in both rankings. Um, that's what we like to joke about. Yes. But either way, whether or not parents have favorites or not is not the topic of today's sermon. However, we know that Jacob, who's renamed Israel, does have a favorite, and it's Joseph. And his other brothers hate him for it. I can't really blame them very much. While they're out working the fields and stuff like that, Jacob is being given a really nice coat and an education and stuff like that. I can't really blame the other brothers for being like, what's this guy? What makes him so different than us? So Joseph has these dreams, right, about everybody bowing down to him. They're like, you think we're going to bow down to you? You're the youngest of us all. And even Jacob, uh, Jacob's dad, uh, or uh, Joseph's dad, Jacob, right, is like, you think your mother and I are going to bow down to you too? Right? So it's not going well. And that's where we pick it up in Genesis chapter 37 verses 12 through 13, and they read like this. 
that his brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem. Israel said to Joseph, are you not your brother, are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come and I will send them, send you to them. And he said to him, I will go. Number one on your note sheets. Number one on your note sheets. Obeying his father. Obeying his father. His father says, come here, favorite child of mine. I have a job for you. Your brothers are out shepherding the flock, pasturing the flock of sheep. Go out and check on them. I want to make sure everything's all right. Go out and check on them. And Jacob says, okay. He obeys. Sorry, I'm going to do that all day long now. Joseph says, okay, I will do that. He obeys his father. What are the consequences for obeying his father? In verse 28 of Genesis 37, we read, uh, it's the end of this story. Then some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up, Joseph that is, and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. So here's what happens. Joseph goes and checks on his brother. They throw him in a hole. They want to kill him. Reuben, an excellent sandwich by the way, sticks up for him and goes, hang on, we can't kill him. And they go, fine, let's just sell him into slavery. Joseph is told to go check on his brothers, and his result of that is he's sold into slavery because his brothers hated him so much. So let me ask you something, and these questions are going to come throughout the, the sermon series, so be ready. These are not rhetorical questions. We can all answer them. Did Joseph do the right thing? Yes. He obeyed his parents, his dad. Did he know what was going to happen? No, but he obeys his father. And he has a horrible consequence. He is sold into slavery, into a land he does not know, to people he does not know, to a culture he does not know, to a language he does not know. His whole world at 17, 18 years old is flipped upside down because he did the right thing in obeying his dad. Now, I have to say, I have never been sold into slavery when obeying my parents, which is fairly nice. And I don't think any of you have either. But you might be able to think back to a time, I couldn't, but you might be able to think back to a time when obeying your mother and father got you into a situation that was a little bit harder than you would have liked. I tried to come up, I tried to come up with a, and, and by obeying, I don't mean obeying when they told you to do something that was wrong. I mean obeying them when they were not telling you to do something that was wrong. It was not wrong of Jacob to ask Joseph to go and, and, and see how the flock and his other sons were doing, right? But if like, if, if my dad was like, hey, can you go pick up, I need eggs, can you go get eggs? Now he wouldn't say that because they have chickens, but I need eggs, can you go get eggs? And I get in a car accident on the way to go get eggs because I'm driving, I'm driving nice, right? I'm going the speed limit, hands at 10 and 2, looking, making sure all is right, and a drunk driver hits me. Well, I did the right thing. I obeyed my dad. The consequences were not good. That did not happen. That is a hypothetical. I've been in two accidents in my life. Three. The first one was when I was learning to drive, and there was a car coming up the road, and he was on my side of the road, and I went into the ditch to avoid him. My dad swears he was not on my side of the road. I think that he was. 
The second time, it was a very snowy night. I was going roughly, and I'm not joking, roughly five miles an hour. I went to make a turn. The car did not turn, and I just went bloop, into the guardrail. No one was hurt. The front of my car bears the scratches. It's all good. The third time, again, was not my fault. I'm sitting at a red light, ready to go, waiting. And the person in front of me decided he no longer wanted to be in the lane. He wanted to be in the lane next to us. And so with a hitch on the back of his car, backed up into me and pulled into the next lane. Maddie's car bears the, the, uh, the nice circle indent of where that ball just went right into me. So I'd like to say I'm not a bad driver, just so we're all clear. Should have been pulled over once or twice, but that's neither here nor there. Right, but you might be able to think of something. But the fact of the matter is that his consequence for doing the right thing is he sold into slavery. Go ahead to the next slide. So let's look at the next moment in his life that we read about. Number two on your note sheets, a tempting offer. A tempting offer. This we read two chapters later in Genesis chapter 39. And I'm going to read you verses 6 through 9 first. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Oh, he's a good looking guy. It came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph and said, and she said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. And he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil in sin against God? So let me lay the groundwork. He gets sold into slavery. This guy, we don't know his name, it's his master, buys him from the Ishmaelites. And very quickly, Joseph shows he's a pretty good worker. And he's very good at administration. That's going to come back later in his life. But he's got a natural knack for administration. I do not. A lot of people will talk to me about this church, and even you guys, and I tell them, it's mom who runs this church, not me. That is because mom's good at administration, and I am not. If I was left to my own devices to run this church, it probably wouldn't exist anymore, just to be honest with you. It's not a strong suit of mine. I've never been good at it. Even when it was just me personally, like, it took me two years in college to figure out how to, you know, like, actually study instead of playing video games and stuff like that because I'm terrible at administering my own life, let alone anyone else's. But Joseph, it turns out, is excellent at it. The cream rose to the top, and it was Joseph. And his master notices this, and his master goes, holy cow, I can live a pretty good life. He's my slave. I will put him in charge of everything in my household. He will run everything in my household, and I will just live in what at that time was the greatest civilization on earth. I'll just live. The only thing he can't have is my wife. It doesn't say, but I'm going to assume this woman was fairly good looking because she's married to one of the high-ranking people in Egypt. And they had their pick, which meant they were not marrying somebody who didn't look good. They didn't really go for personality when they had that high-ranking official, just saying. And so she comes to him, and it's like, that guy's hot. He's young. He's a stud. I want that. She's probably never been denied almost anything in her life up to this point. 
Because again, she's the wife of a high-ranking official. She gets what she wants. This is probably not the first time she has seen one of the slaves and gone, I want that. This is the first time she's been denied. And Joseph goes, I can't do it. For two reasons. One, my master has given me, he trusts me. It was everything except for you. I'm not breaking that. And secondly and most importantly, we read it in the, in the very end of verse 9. How can I do this great evil and sin against God? You see, in all that Jacob had did to raise Joseph, he has at least instilled in him who God is and what right and wrong is. He pampered him. He was his favorite, but at least he taught him right from wrong. And what God says, this is a good thing. This is amazing. He gets this tempting offer. He can have everything he wants, including a woman. And for every red-blooded boy in here, you'll understand how tempting that can be. There it is. It's right before him. He can have everything he wants. And he says, no. So what's the consequence for him? Verse 20 of chapter 29. Let me give you the backstory first. The last time she asks, he runs. Because she asks multiple times. He runs. And she grabs a hold of his tunic and rips off part of it. Not on purpose. He's got his hand on him. He pulls away. It rips. However, we see she's a fairly smart woman as well. Not only is she good looking, she's pretty smart. And so what she does is put that piece of cloth next to her as evidence, waits for her husband to get home, and is on the bed crying because Joseph has tried to rape her. That's what she tells him. He, being, I guess, a good husband, I don't know what he's like other than in this exact moment, so I can't say whether or not he's a good husband really, takes his wife's word for it. She's got the evidence, his tunic's right there. And she, and he, in verse 20 it says, so Joseph's master took him and put him into jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in jail. So, I ask again, did Joseph do the right thing in saying no to his master's wife's advances? There we go, that's better than the first one. We'll get this. There's going to be three weeks of this, so we'll get there. Yes, he does. And his consequence is jail. For 10 plus years, jail. This is not like today where, I mean, I'm not defending our jailing system. I think there's a lot wrong in our country with certain things. But you do have terms, I shouldn't say terms, um, uh, and sentences, thank you, whoever said that, where, you know, certain crimes are worth a certain amount of years and stuff like that, right? It wasn't like that back then. He, Joseph is in jail until essentially Pharaoh or this guy says you can come out. That's it. And we read, we know he's going to be there for at least 10 years. He's stuck in this prison cell. It's not a very good consequence. So, we see two moments to this point in Joseph's life when he has done something right, the way that God would have wanted him to do it. And his consequence is not all hunky-dory. However, there is a third moment in his life 
a third moment in his life where things do kind of turn out very good for him and for the entire nation of Israel eventually. Let's read it. It's number three on your note sheet. Relies on God. He relies on God. Later on in chapter 39 of Genesis, we read this in verse 21 and 22. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. And the chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. So here's what happens. He's thrown in jail, and very quickly, quickly the chief jailer realizes the same thing Joseph's previous master did. Holy cow, Joseph is pretty good at administration. And it says the Lord, that's capital, that's all caps L-O-R-D, so Yahweh, God, was with Joseph, extends his kindness to him. He's had him thrown in jail. What kindness is God extending? It takes time. But we see that he begins to, to, he's essentially in charge of the jail, the prisoners in the jail. He's the administrator. I didn't put these verses in here, but let me, let me read to you, uh, not read to you, let me tell you what happens. Eventually, two prisoners are thrown into the same prison as Joseph is. <laughs> Okay, Pharaoh's cupbearer and his baker are thrown in prison. We don't read exactly what happens, but maybe the cupbearer spilled the wine. Again, this is Pharaoh, the overruler of the greatest, the strongest civilization country in the world at that time. He can pretty much do what he wants. The cupbearer and baker could have looked at him bad in prison. Joseph has shown a propensity for being able to understand dreams because he relies on God. He says God's the one who sends the dreams anyway, so he's the one who can interpret them. These two, uh, two prisoners have dreams the same night. And Joseph, doing his, his duties as the best prisoner, goes to check on them, and he notices there's something wrong. So he asks them, and they explain their dreams to him. And I'm not going to walk through what the exact dreams are, but here's the gist. He looks at the cupbearer, and he says, your dream means you're going to get out of here in three days, and you're going to be fine. Pharaoh's going to reinstate you as his cupbearer. It's going to go great. And the baker's like, yes, that sounds great. And Joseph looks at him and says, in three days, you're, you're going to be killed. Pharaoh's going to have you killed. The cupbearer's like, well, what can I do to thank you? And he goes, just when you are with the Pharaoh, remember me. He knows he's been in prison for the wrong thing. He's not made a fuss about it. He's not tried to work his way out. He's done what God has asked him to do in the place he's asked him to do it, when he's asked him to do it, and it was in a prison cell, and he just says to the cupbearer, hey, just remember me. Please, I've been here almost 10 years. Remember me. The cupbearer goes, oh, I will. So it happens. Does the cupbearer remember poor Joseph in this prison cell? No, he does not. And Joseph spends more time in prison. Until one day when Pharaoh is beset by dreams. And then the cupbearer remembers. Oh, there's a guy in your prison cells. He interprets dreams. Go get him. So Pharaoh does. And Joseph comes, and Pharaoh's like, I hear you can interpret dreams. And Joseph's, Joseph's response to him is, no, I can't. God can. They come from him. God can interpret your dreams. 
and I'll just tell you what God says. The, t the humility that takes. He could have said, yes, I can interpret your dreams, and then said anything he wanted to. But he knows it's not from him, it's from God. You see, those 10 years in prison and that time he was a slave, God is prepping him and preparing him for something massive. 18-year-old, 17-year-old Joseph could not have saved the nation of Israel. He couldn't have done it. He wasn't ready yet. It took another, by the end of it, 27 years in total. So what happens is, he tells Pharaoh the dreams, and he says, here's what your dreams mean. He, Pharaoh's had two dreams, and he goes, it's the same meaning. You're going to have seven years of prosperity, lots of crops. It's going to be great. But then, you will have seven years of famine. Not a thing will grow. And Pharaoh goes, okay, what should we do? And Joseph goes, here's what you do. Again, he's really good at administration. Grow as much food, as much grain as you can over the next seven years and store it all up. Not fully ration people, but don't indulge. Don't let people indulge. Save that grain. And then over that seven-year time period when there's famine, you will have enough food for your nation and for all the surrounding nations as well. And in verse 40 and 41, we read Pharaoh's response. He's talking to Joseph, and he says, You shall be over my house, and according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne will I be greater than you. Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Joseph went from a slave to the Ishmaelites, to a slave to somebody in Egypt, to a prisoner for ten years, to being literally the second most powerful man in the world. And all it took was 15 or so years of a lot of hardship and pain. Can you imagine the mental anguish and emotional anguish Joseph goes through when his brothers, he can hear them talking about how they should kill him. And then they sell him into slavery. That's a make or break moment for Joseph. But he decides he's going to keep doing the right thing. And then in Pharaoh's house, or not, excuse me, in his master's house, he does the right thing. He says, my, my, my master has told me explicitly, I cannot have you, so no. And what does it happen? What, he, he follows his master's orders and God's orders, and again he gets screwed over and thrown in prison unjustly. And again he could have broken down. And said, fine, God, I have followed you. And all that's led me to is hardship and pain. I'm done. I'm out. And no one could have blamed him. But instead, he still says, okay, God, I don't understand. But I'll keep following you. Until this moment. And what are the consequences? As I said, he becomes the second most powerful man in Egypt. He saves countless lives. And roughly 27 years after his brothers have thrown him in, in a hole and then sold him to the Ishmaelites, he is reunited with his family. It's a hard road. And in fact, he's mad at his brothers. I would be too. 
until he realizes something else. He has a moment there as well to do the right thing and leave the consequences up to God, and he does. And Israel is saved because of it. Joseph will go on and finish out his life, and Israel will live, uh, the nation of Israel, the Jews, will live in Egypt for roughly 400 years. A lot of them prosperous, but eventually they'll be turned into slaves as well. Um, that goes on further throughout Genesis and then Exodus. I didn't write this on your, on your note sheets. I forgot to put it there. But let's apply it, shall we? Somebody needs to go tell mom that I'm applying it. Thank you. <laughs> I just realized Maddie's not in. Oh, did you text her? Okay. I just noticed Maddie's not in here and she's the normal runner. Okay. This is an, this is an application, this one, that you are going to hear over and over and over again over the next three weeks. Okay? Because I want to drill it into your brains. I want you to go to bed at night and that's all you can think about. Okay? Do the right thing. Leave the consequences to God. You and I are not, not to worry about what the consequences are. Sometimes they will be good. Oftentimes they will be difficult. All the time they will bring glory and honor to God. Do the right thing and leave the consequences up to him. Secondly, Recognize the fact that when you do that, your life will get harder. There will be more things that go wrong than that go right. It is the nature of being a Christian. If you've been a Christian for a long time, and I mean diligently following God for a long time, you will know that. Christianity is not easy. It was never promised to be easy. And when you do the right thing in a world, Joseph's world was just as fallen as ours is today. It might look different, but sin has abounded since Adam and Eve decided to do it. And the world has set itself up against God since that very moment. It hasn't changed. And it won't change until Christ comes back on a white horse at the end of time. Recognize that fact and recognize that that means that when you do the right thing by God's standards, not the right thing by the world's standards, but the right thing by God's standards, you will be looked upon as at best an oddball, and at worst you might be put to death. Probably not in this country, but if you're almost anywhere else, you've got a decent chance of it. The fact of the matter is that when you do the right thing and leave the consequences up to God, your life will get harder. But thirdly, and I've got one more after this, you're practical. Thirdly, recognize, like Joseph did, like Paul and Silas, who we're going to talk about next week, did, that when you leave those consequences up to God, you have no idea what's going to happen. Joseph saves countless lives or I shouldn't say Joseph does. God uses Joseph to save countless lives, including his own families. There's no way Joseph could have known that at 17, 18 years old, being sold by his brothers into slavery. But it happened. It took almost 30 years. It took almost three decades. And yet, God used him. Here's your practical application. And here's the thing. This is going to be the same basic practical application for the next three weeks as well. So you can memorize that and get it good too. 
one time this week. You should do it every time, but bless you. One time this week, I want you to actively think about when a situation comes up. Actively think about, I need to do the right thing and leave the consequences up to God. Don't choose the easy thing, right? Choose the difficult thing. It might not end up great for you, quite frankly. I'm not going to stand up here and go, you do it and you're going to watch as God changes the world around you. Maybe. Or maybe, like so many in Hebrews, you will never see how God used your right decisions. You might not know. It doesn't matter. Because you've got to do the right thing. It takes conscious thought. So think it. Do the right thing, leave the consequences up. If you've got to repeat that to yourself throughout the whole process, do it. And remind yourself of a man named Joseph who spent 30 years in hard, bitter life and was used by God to do something incredible. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you this morning um, that you are in charge of the consequences because, man, if I was in charge of my own self, boy, that'd be, that'd be scary. I thank you for people like Joseph that we can see um, how you use people. But also the fact that it's not going to go well by our definition quite a lot of the time. I pray, Father, that for each and every one of us, you would give us the strength, the faith, the grace to do the right thing every time and leave the consequences up to you. I praise you. I ask you give us all an incredible week. Give us the opportunities that we, that we so need to live out our, our life for you. Um, it's in the name of your son that we pray. Amen and amen.